You're listening to Relationships and Chill, the podcast for singles and couples about how to find and cultivate the relationship you've always dreamed of based on trust and honest communication. Why waste your time going through the typical dating obstacle course only to end up with drama, jealousy, and heartbreak when you can find the love of your life and live happily ever after? So sit back, chill, and get ready to make relationships great again. Greetings, everyone. Greetings, greetings. Welcome to another edition of the Relationships and Chill podcast, the ultimate podcast for relationships and dating. I am your host, Coach R. Anthony, and we are back in the building with another amazing episode. Today, we have a very special guest uh, in the building. This is the man that's responsible for the Dear Future Wife series that you guys may have heard of. We have a very special guest. Our guest is a licensed clinical social worker described as an intellectual emotionalist, someone who understands what a man thinks and what a woman feels, helping the two meet and have common ground by encouraging emotion and logic to agree. He's a dedicated father, relationship specialist, and author. I want y'all to give it up for Bashe Williams. Give it up for Bashe. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. What's going on, my brother? What's going on? Nothing much, man. Happy to be here. Appreciate you reaching out to me. I'm excited about what we're about to talk about um, on this on this good day, man. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. We got a, a lot to talk about, for real. Yeah. Um, so, well, let's let's get started with you. Um, just to kind of get a, I, just to get an idea of who you are and how you got to the place of, of where you are and, and, you know, the expertise that you have and the amount of time that it took you to get to this point. Um, so let, tell us a little bit about how you got started and why you got started in your field. Okay. So I always say that the field chose me. I always felt like it was a calling on my life. Um, just in general, friends growing up in, in what we call a hood or um, low-income housing, you know, you have the different dynamics, the family dynamics, you have the community dynamics, a lot of diff- different dysfunctional things happening. Right. Um, we had social workers that used to come into the neighborhood, and I, uh, one of those social workers became my mentor and kind of said that, you know, you can be doing what I'm doing and impacting the community and helping out. And naturally, I was always someone who listened uh, someone who always tried to help somebody else out because that's essentially what I needed. So, or what I wanted. Right. So it, it, it went from being that person that listened to you, provide different resources, provide uh, information, um, just, just helping you out to me making it a, a career choice. So going through life just in general, um, again, being a listener. So I said, okay, this can be a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially I was just like, it's no money in social work. So I was like, I'm not going to do it. So I tried different careers and stuff like that, but it I always fell right back into it. Um, I took a marriage and family class and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to be a therapist. Uh, and from that point on, I got my bachelor's, my master's and my clinical license. And then I started my own private practice. Nice. Nice. <clears throat> so the, 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 the field chose you. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you on that. You um, definitely did, man. Man, you brought up a very important point, but I want to get into that later about about mentoring. Like, like you said, having somebody that's that's um, 
that can point you in a direction. Because I think right. if you're kind of left alone, especially as a young black man, the 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 obvious too, and we talked about this before, is either basketball, like sports, right. rap, or you know what I'm saying? So you think that's all there is. And we talked about this before, that our mentality which is which is which is not bad per se, mm-hmm. but it kind of narrows you and and, and so oftentimes puts you behind because right. you know while you're focused on and there's nothing wrong with sports, but sometimes we tend to stay in that dream a little too long. Yeah, you yeah. know what I'm saying. And then we wake up one day and then we really don't have any skills, so we're starting probably two three years behind. Still right. good at basketball, still right. a dunk on you, <laughs> but. <laughs> but we got to get the skills up, uh, you know, in other areas in order to progress um, just in, in what we're going to be doing in life. So what were some of the biggest obstacles that you that you faced before you got in, into your field? And also, you know, like you said, getting into the field and transitioning from the dream, I would say, um, mm-hmm. or, or the idea. And like you said, you fought it with with other trying different other, you know, uh, careers. But it, but it, but you came back to this one. So what were some of the obstacles that let you know, hey, this ain't it for you? Okay. So uh, originally I wanted to do business, but I got into the classes I just wasn't interested. Mm. Now, um, you know, of course, there's different angles you go on business um, when you're you're a freshman, a sophomore. But I couldn't. What I wanted to do is be an entrepreneur. I wanted to have my own business. So at that time, I had a little patience of really understanding I had to do these things in order to get to that 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 space. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the classes. Um, and then thinking about physical therapy, I wanted to do, um, I got in there and it was like, okay, if you do physical therapy, you got to go to pre-physical therapy, and then you got to go to take these classes. Mm-hmm. I wasn't that interested in the whole science of everything. I just liked to being called a physical therapist okay. because I knew they made some money. And then I was just like, maybe being an attorney. I was like, okay, I would love to be an attorney. Um, but then, you know, you think about law school, think about what's the next step. And I actually had uh, a connection and a scholarship to go to Vanderbilt for law school. I was working, I was in the field in social work um, and I worked at um, a, a courthouse under a juvenile judge being a court liaison. And she was like, I'm gonna get you into Vanderbilt uh, because I love the work that you're doing. You have the grace for it. All you have to do is uh, fill out an application and you're going to be at Vanderbilt for law school. Mm. But my thing was I wanted to be a juvenile judge, but I knew that was going to be a long process. But the social work was right there. The private practice was right there um, as an option. And then so I finally said, with the help of my mentor, figuring it out and understanding that there is a lot of money in social work, I said, this is where I want to be. Uh, this is natural to me. This is my calling again. Uh, so those were a lot of the obstacles. I did have obstacles in grad school, you know, having my son being born and being away while he was in Maryland. I was in um, Tennessee uh, dealing with, it's crazy it is, um, a racist dean. It was a brand new uh, program, master's program, but my dean was racist. I'm down, again, I'm down in Tennessee. I'm the only black uh, male, originally I was the only black um, student in the whole program. Mm. Then I was the only black male in the whole program. And I was the first to graduate from it, but 
I was dealing with a lot of that. So I was dealing with a, a white, um, racist female dean and who just tried everything to make sure I wouldn't graduate on time. Just all types of just random stuff. So um, there was a lot of obstacles going through the process, but you know, I'm here. I wasn't gonna let it stop me. There you go, there you go, man, brother. When I tell you that's a, a lot of different avenues to pursue. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of different avenues to pursue, but I, but I get it, I get why you said, you know, it chose you, because I, I, think I, I think we all kind of fall into that. Mm-hmm. Especially knowing, well, I guess kind of not knowing what you what you ultimately should do or want to do, and then just right. trying to figure it out um, on your own, and just trying to trying these different avenues to see, you know, what works. I, I have an interest in this, and I have an interest in that, and I have an interest mm-hmm. in that. Shout out to Freddie B. He went to uh, Vanderbilt. My homeboy Freddie B. I, I think you're listening, Freddie okay. Vincent. He went to Vanderbilt. So, but um. Yeah, so I mean, like, like I said, that's that's a lot. But do you think do you think it's a lot because you got got interested in like for instance, like we talked about this yesterday. My interest was strictly going to the NBA. Like I had no for for a while, you know, like for for like majority of my high school years, I had no alternate plans. I just was like, I'm going to play. I'm playing somewhere. If I'm playing in on the chitlin circuit, you know, I'm gonna play basketball somewhere. Yeah. Uh, that was my thing. But how long, how long did it take for you to, to start getting into moving towards that? Was it early on? Like, I guess, how, how soon did you meet your mentor? At what point did you meet your mentor? So I met him actually in sixth grade. Okay. Uh, when I was in the neighborhood, he was one of the social workers that came into the neighborhood. My mother was a property manager. It was a it was a, um, a neighborhood that was surrounded by a gate. It was the only gated community in the area, and it wasn't because it was nice. Mm-hmm. It was gated because their idea of keeping drugs out, keeping certain pe- people out, um, and just to really to monitor community. So when we moved in there, those were one of the things that was implemented. Um, we had police at the front and security at the back mm-hmm. of the gate, and right next to it was a trailer park. So he came in and mind you, he didn't look anything like us in the community. This is a minority, uh, majority, probably 80% African-American, um, maybe 10% um, or 15% Hispanic and 5% white. Okay. Um, and he was a white, redheaded, gay male. Okay. At that time, I mean, he, we didn't know he was gay. We weren't paying attention. Um, and he was also pretending like he wasn't. So it was but, like in the nineties too. Yeah, probably, yeah. So yeah, it was totally. You can't, different. you know, it was totally <laughs> right. different. Then. Yeah. So you know, him coming into the community, everybody was looking like, "Yo, why is this white dude in the community?" But he stuck. Uh, he 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 stuck there, and he pushed through, and he told a couple of us that he should not be the one coming in this community to try to change mm. what's happening. Mm. He shouldn't be the face of change or the the, the change agent. And I think it was like maybe three of us that eventually started listening and said, um, you know, we used to hold these youth groups and he used to always help, ask me to help facilitate. Okay. So I used to help facilitate and then I became a leader of the, the groups, the camps or whatever we're doing, be a, a chaperone and all that type of stuff. So um, 
it got to that point where we just started developing a relationship. It was like, yo, let me just groom you and let you know what you need to do in order to get this. And I was like, it's no money. Again, I'm going back to this, no money in social work. And then he hit us to a, um, to w- that it was. And he said that at that time, I think it was maybe 95. And he was saying that he was making a hundred and something in mm-hmm. private practice. Okay. So you're 95, you're driving this Acura, you know, you're able to set up these trips and have this, you know, this stuff get us out of our neighborhood. And and Acura was the car in the nineties. I yeah, tell you that. Yeah. Acura yeah, was the was. car. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was just, you know, an opportunity and exposure to other things that said we can do more than basketball. Right. Like I, I love to play basketball. My dream year, NBA, I was like, uh, I wasn't really um pushing to make it to the NBA. A lot of people were saying like, yo, you you can be the one out of the neighborhood that can make it to the NBA. I didn't want that pressure. Okay. I want I wanted basketball to continue to be fun. That's a whole nother pressure that I'm dealing with. Like I'm in private school. I got people, I got scouts at the game. And what I used to do is go play my game and then go back to the hood and we at open gym. I still got my, my game uniform on. I'm still hooping. Right, right, right. That's how much I loved it. But it was free. It was fun. It was no yeah. pressure. Yeah, yeah. So um, I just had other ideas. I just knew I just wanted to have my own business or whatever it was. Um, if the NBA happened, it happened. But I knew the chances of it not happening were greater than the chances of it happening. See, I was I was like, it's going to happen. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, it's going to happen. I'm going to find some kind of way to play ball for the rest of my life. But, you know, things change. And um, I think it's great. Because, you know, around that time when I graduated is when I met my mentor. And that's when things started to shift for me. It took a while, um, but it started to shift in terms of, you know, because you you have mentors for all types of reasons. You know, you got different mentors for different, different reasons. But for me, I needed someone who could compile all the different things that I was privy to that I had right. witnessed in my life. So I had parts over here cause you know, my, my upbringing was military. So we moved around a lot. So it was very compartmentalized and very scattered, but yeah. he was able to kind of like bring it into, um, into, into like view. So where it's, it, it got clearer and clearer, like this is what you, this is the type of thing that you need to be doing. This is what you need to be focused on. These are the things mm-hmm. you need to be working on. As opposed to like one minute I'm over here, one minute I'm over there, and the next minute I'm over here. So I want to talk to you about the importance of, of, of mentorship. Like mm-hmm. how important is it that, because I have a theory, but I want to know your perspective on male, specifically male mentoring. We can get into to female mentoring, but for uh, the importance of a male to have a, a, a masculine, per se, um, mentor to, to help, you know, kind of facilitate the ideas that he needs to have. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the ideas that, because like I said, well, let me ask you this. Mentoring, what does that mean to you? Um, I think it's an example. I think it's someone who can help when you're struggling with something or if you don't know where you're going, um, it, they provide ideas, they provi- provide support, uh, they provide uh, different avenues or different ways to go, you know, a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it goes back to exampling, like someone having a conversation. I've been through certain things. Let me just guide you. 
I'm not judging you. I'm not forcing you. I think it's a different relationship between a parental uh, figure and a mentor, because this is something that, you know, what do you want to do? And let me help you get there. Right. You know, without the, the pressure of uh, you have to do this, you need to do this. And, you know, it's just a different relationship. And they're stepping out of your mess and saying, yo, maybe this might help or something like that. So it's a different, it's not the same pressure um, or relationship. Okay. Okay. So it's okay. I mean, we, we got so much to talk about, man. I like, we, we got so much to talk about because, um, let me see. I don't want to get into the book right now, but there's a lot, there's a lot in your book that we're going to get into, man, because I find for, for men specifically that having a mentor makes it makes the difference even if they are not exactly a carbon copy of what you will be but it kind of filters out the process so that you don't have to you can you can first of all you don't have to go through a lot of the stuff on your own you don't have to figure a lot of it out on your own even though you may do it anyway even though you've been given the information hey do this and you like i'm gonna do this you know what i mean like to, to, to figure it out on my own but at least you have a, a guiding point to go back to and you, you have a buffer to kind of keep bumping yourself up against. Right. So for me, it was the same thing. Around that time also, I started journaling. I started writing um, writing down my thoughts, just different things that I desired and all that kind of stuff. And it, it was amazing that around that time, 2001, around the same month, like in the same month, I met my mentor. Mm. which is which is crazy because i feel i feel like for me my mentor is the external version of what i what i write down if mm. that makes sense yeah, yeah. um so it it kind of manifests itself and i think man that's why it's 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 so important to understand that you know our spiritual we are spiritual beings having having a natural experience like we have this 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 power that we can tap into but right. I think we it gets so lost in in the things that we think we don't the things that we think we know that we don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. we think we know. Okay, like I got to figure it out. I'm going to the NBA, right? But not realizing that we don't know what it takes to get there. We're just mm-hmm. kind of like going off the the desire. You know what I mean? Right. Like we want we have the desire to be that, and nine times out of ten that may never happen but i like your perspective in that you were like i don't really want it to happen kind of like if it happens it happens but i'm not really gonna like it's not gonna be my objective like i don't have to do it's too much pressure right so but what was the alternative for you then so my alternative was whatever I needed to do to make money and have my own business. Okay. So I always had the, the mentality that I wanted to be doing my own thing under my own control um, and something that I love. So, um, and, and it's funny because an old supervisor, uh, when I branched out, an old, maybe my first supervisor out of uh, grad school told me that you always had the entrepreneurial spirit. I had clients when I worked for child welfare, young men, and saying like we used to sit in, you know, I used to work with them for like five or six years, you know, see what I'm doing now is like you always had the entrepreneurial spirit because I was telling them that, you know, your calling, your gift, your purpose is something that um, isn't about your circumstances, about where you want to go. 
You know, you have gifts just because you're in foster care, just because you don't have your parents doesn't mean that you can't be everything that you want to be, everything that you were designed to be. So my that was my mentality. My mentality was to, you know, my father told me this and he was young. He was like, when you go into a business, learn how to run the business. Mm. So you're not just going there to work, but learn how to run it yourself. So everywhere I worked, I had to learn how to run it myself. And that was just my mentality. So when I'm working at a job, my first job was McDonald's. Okay, do I want to own a McDonald's? Right. Nah, it's not my thing, but I know how to, you know, I know the ins and outs. I'm sitting the manager or whatever. And then when I, again, when I got into this field, you know, I'm working for other people in, in, in therapy or um, whatever field that it was, whatever uh, particular uh, job. It's like, ah, this is how I run it myself. But I was learning mm. the ins and outs. So now I'm prepared when I step out. This is this is what I am. This is what I want to do. This is my purpose. This is my calling. Right. And I learned the job. So now I'm running my own. Right, right, right. <clears throat> okay. Um. So I want to talk to you about right quick. Just what you experience um, as a social worker and how. I want to know. You know what I want. I want to know how it has change your perspective because you said at one point the social worker had came out there to you and now you're on kind of on the outside looking in whereas mm-hmm. you were on the inside looking out but how does it look now being kind of on the outside of it and you're seeing young men like yourself mm-hmm. that you know are kind of like going through whatever you know the life process that they're going through in, in whatever area of foster care or whatever you know, scenario they're in, outside looking in, how does that, I, I, I want to say, how does that affect you, but how does it, well, yeah, how does it, how, well, it's really like, I got like eight questions in one. So how yeah. does it affect you, but also how are you looking at them um, to, to say, okay, you could do this, but your mind right now is not, like, you're not going to be able to see it. Mm-hmm. Cause you're you're kind of on the inside of it. You're kind of in your own, you know, your own scenario. So you, of course you're gonna see it the way you're seeing you're seeing it. So how do you go about kind of transferring that information or basically mentoring them that are in the position that you're? Kinda, you understand? My, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's it's different things. So I always looked at it is that the social work position. If you're in, well, just for my community, mm-hmm. if you're in the low income. Uh, community, you've you've been through struggles. Essentially, what I am is an extension of that. And what I am is going through the process of getting a degree in my experience. Mm. So that's what social work is to me. I have a degree in my experience. I have a license in my experience. I have the clinical background now that supports what I've been through. So if I go back into my community and I see a young man, he is my experience, but let me show you what I learned in school about my experience. Mm. So now we're just having a conversation when I'm in, in and I'm licensed. We're having a licensed conversation. So, gotcha. um, you know, we grew up in that thing and the, the social worker at the time was telling me, you know, I understand what you're going through mm. because he read it somewhere or he saw it. Gotcha. So when I go and pick up the book and I'm reading it, I'm reading my experience from someone who hasn't experienced it. Exactly. So I got you. When I was in grad school, I used to challenge 
um, my teachers a lot when they talk about our community. Mm-hmm. The African-American, this, like, no, that's right. not, that's not what it is. <laughs> you know, we, that's, that's our community. That's us connecting. Right. But at the same time, we had to connect on that level because we had nothing else. We didn't have the resources. We didn't have the free money given to us. We didn't have access to a lot of things. So that was our community. That was our survival tactics. So we had what I call counselors, therapists in our in our community forever. They were right. called the elders. Right. We had the uncle who had the information. You had the grandmother who had the information, the grandfather who had the information. And the aunties, boy, the aunties license. had all the information. Yeah, it just, <laughs> this one license, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they can tell you from maybe their experience and what they see. Like I've been through that, baby. You know that type of stuff. So, but when you go into school, you get so many different perspectives, so many clinical um, information. You get the diagnosis, you get the understanding of why this happened, what trauma is like, right. and you know we no longer normalize our experiences, saying that's just. That's just what happens in the hood. No, that's trauma. That's not what's supposed to happen, but we are used to it and we just don't realize how it affects us. So mm-hmm. that's how I connect with, um, I guess, the kids in the community, understanding that, um, yes, I had my parents, but my best friend didn't. Right. Um, there were times when my parents went through things and so I understand I connect on that level. Mm-hmm. You know, having dysfunctional family, having siblings, have siblings, you know, all that type of stuff. So there's a lot of relational stuff that I can connect with, but then there's the, again, the clinical training that I right. can apply to kind of get through that instead of us just sitting in it. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. That kind of like moves, you, you know, so if I was to break this down and say from the beginning, I mm-hmm. obviously as a child, you're coming up in this environment that you don't really know what you don't know. So, you, you know, it, it's just what it is. You know, you're, you're in this community, you're in this environment, and this is, this is where you are. You don't right. really start to know anything different until you move outside or you start becoming more aware of things outside of this immediate community. Cause this is all, you know, this is kind of like the womb of your life for, you know, a period of time. Some people never like never leave it. Um, you know, but some people progress towards it, but in that, in that you, you, you take on a mentality that affects not only your life, but your relationships as well. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it doesn't just end with, you know, okay, well, I'm, you're kind of blinded by what you don't know. So you're going through this process, but you're witnessing all these dysfunctional relationships. So all these relationships that you're witnessing from a child on up to, you know, drugs and, you know, um, abuse and all that kind of stuff that you that you witness inside of these particular environments as you begin to progress. That's all, you know, is dysfunction. Right. Right. So now we're moving into as you get older and you become more interested, like, let's say from a man's perspective, because we got a lot. We could talk about this stuff all day. But from a man's perspective, as we're moving into masculinity, so to speak, we're becoming more, you know, we're going through the different phases of of becoming a man, right? Right. Then we, it's it's hard to unlearn dysfunction. Right. So at what point, how does a person unlearn dysfunction? Mm Mm-hmm. 
So it's through practice. Um, okay. You know, you get exposure to what, um, what's different. You know, um, dysfunction is, like you said, you live in it and you learn it and you become what you watch. You become what you experience. And so you start to repeat some of the things because that's, that's been normalized. But you get to a point where it's only normal because, again, you experienced it and it's been a cycle. Like, because you haven't been given the tools or the access to something that's different. Mm-hmm. But we all have choices at some point and we all struggle with that and say, yo, this doesn't feel good. This is not normal. But because I've been practicing, it's like a habit. I'm just doing it. Mm-hmm. Or I haven't really dealt with that. I really haven't dealt with the fact that it impacted me in this way. It really bothered me. So instead of dealing with it because that hurts when I deal with it, that impacts me in a different way. That, that means I have to show some vulnerability. I have to deal with this thing. I'm just going to push through it and just do it. Hmm. You know, I'm just going to keep continue to do the same things that were done to me because I want somebody to feel either feel the way I was feeling or I don't know any other way. Right. So I think it, it becomes just um, emotional, um, your, your psychological habits just become um, the norm. Mm-hmm. But now I'm just, I guess, operating in what I experienced. Right. Well, th- th- there you go. I mean, so th- that's kind of what I'm, what I'm getting to, is that y- your dysfunction becomes functional after mm-hmm. a while. So y- you think everybody else? Well, I, I, from, I, I would say some people. Some people begin to believe that this, this dysfunction that they're living is the right way. And that everybody else is doing it the wrong way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's tough to break, right? You know, when when you when you absolutely believe that you have, like, you have no contribution to it. But like I said, it goes back to a lot of the things that we experience and a lot of the things that that you know, as as we're coming up, these are the things that we we because it is attached to our cultural beliefs. It's right. attached to our cultural pride, so to speak. Like, this is what mm-hmm. you have to do in a relationship, or this is what you have to do as a man, this is what you have to do as a woman, this is what you have to do when you're in love. So we attach all these these ideas to these different meanings. But they're all attached to our cultural, let's say, not saying everybody is coming from the same culture and everybody that came comes from that culture is dysfunctional. But I'm getting to a point because for me, until I had someone who had gotten out of the dysfunction or could show me what functional looks like dysfunction was the was the the system that I was going to live by for the most part mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so having somebody who can kind of show you hey these are the results and this is um this is what it looks like when it's like this so like you said in the beginning access the resources mm-hmm. those are the things that that help me mm-hmm. so uh, man we 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 got so much stuff let me see i guess i want to i'm going to ask you a question about your your practice a, as it stands right now mm-hmm. um some of the some of the common threads that you face right now in your practice as it relates to how people relate to each other? What are, what are some of the common themes that you constantly run across? I think um, it 
a lot of it is about maybe self-preservation in the sense that um, unhealthy self-preservation. So it's, it's like, what can you do for me? I have these, these wounds. I have these things that I'm dealing with and I need someone to protect me, but I know anyone's people aren't going to protect me. So I'm going to protect myself and I'm not going to let anybody in. If I'm dealing with couples, it's like, I want to have this great relationship, this great marriage, but I still want to be me. Right. Um, and I want you to adjust your everything for me. Mm. Uh, if I'm dealing with it is mental illness where of course the distorted thoughts and stuff like that, you're dealing with anxiety, right. depression, stuff like that. So a lot of it is about, um, I mean, it's so many, it can be so many different things. Like there's, there's like I deal, and I say this as I continue to talk, I'm just thinking about different clients. So I deal with, you know, the youngest I have is five, the oldest I have is 72. Mm-hmm. So I have kids who are dealing with ADHD, maybe anxiety, um, depression and I have adults dealing with anxiety, depression, um, adjustment, uh, bipolar, um, just relationship issues, um, abandonment, mm. um, narcissism, just across the board. So, um, I want to know what's the, what's the toughest one you had to like, you had to like figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, how do I figure this out? You know, because yeah. I know there's a, there's a, there could be a combination of different things that kind of like manifest as this concoction of whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's what's one of just just out of my curiosity, I'm just curious to know what's one of those ones you like, man, how do I figure this out? And then you like, OK, I'm, I'm going to walk you through a process or is it just pretty much like everyone goes through the same process? For the it, it's different. I mean, so therapy. It's, it's a place where somebody comes in and talks about this stuff. And I always empower people to say that you're the expert. I'm just on the outside, just a second voice right. in your head. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to give you resources and I'm going to maybe give you a different perspective or a different understanding. So if I'm looking at what the toughest thing to do is or toughest um, situation is somebody maybe who is might not be on their medication and they're not really you know, getting it. So we're just kind of like sitting there. We're just having these things that we're all over the place. Mm. So that might be, you know, a, a tough situation um, prior to practice, maybe working with somebody who was schizophrenic um, and not on their medication or self-medicating. Mm. Um, somebody comes to the session and they're high, you know, it's tough. Like we can't really do too much. Right. So if they turn them away, it's like, we, we just sitting here. Like we just, so um, I think everybody comes with their own stuff okay. and it's like, what can I do? Cause I'm in, I mean, I'm present in a session. Right. So we might come up with a, create a treatment plan and, and we're supposed to talk about this. And we might talk about something totally new that just happened the day before or as they were coming in mm-hmm. or their week might've shifted. So, you know, it's being able to adjust and, and meet the client where they are. Right, 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 right. I definitely understand. So we're going to take a break right quick, and we're going to come back and talk more about Dear Future Wife and, and, and how to start moving in the direction of, of positive, great relationships. So we're going to do that right quick. We're going to take a break, and uh, you guys stay tuned. Okay.